Tisha B'Av is commemorates the destruction of our Beis Hamikdash, and of course the exile of the Jewish people from the land of Israel. An exile that was both a physical exile, a spiritual exile. The great commentaries describe it as a rule was created between God and the Jewish people. So the exile became a theme throughout Jewish history. And that's in the keynote, they all describe, you know, different times and areas of the exile, different authors, different poets, different rabbinic figures describe their exile, whether it's the, the pogroms of the Middle Ages or a little bit later, or whether it's the destruction of the Beis Amigdash and later on the Ten Martyrs. Many, many years after that, in um, here it says in uh, approximately 1897, the 1800s, Mark Twain uh, <clears throat> made a couple of points that about the Jewish we people. Have this is a, uh, he ends you know, with a question, but he has a number of points, I would say four or five points about the Jewish people. He says like this, uh, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race, I think it's actually less in our time, it suggests a nebulous dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Okay, well, Jews are not usually even noticed, but when you ask people how many Jews there are on earth, usually there's somewhere between 30 million and 30 billion, right? People are always saying we sort of make that, give that impression. Properly, the Jews ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of, has always been heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. We all know that. <clears throat> his contribution to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine, and abstruse learning are also way out of proportion. I mean, he was like probably considered himself an expert in literature. So he, if he says that the Jews were outstanding in literature, that's a pretty good compliment for Mark Twain. Uh, <clears throat> he has made a marvelous fight in this world in all the ages and has done it with his hands tied behind his back. Mm -hmm. He could be vain of himself and be excused for it. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, this is the most famous part, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the, and the Persian rose filled the planet with sound and splendor, then faded into dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise, and they are gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burnt out. And they sit in, twi in the twilight now, in twilight now, and have vanished. The Jews saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmities of age, no weakening 
of his parts, no slowing down of his energies. And those the Jewish nations, an old nation should eventually, you know, slow down. No dulling of his alert and aggressive mind. All things are mortal, but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? So Mark Twain makes a number of, uh, notices a number of observations about the Jewish people. One is that according to his size, should not even, should not even be heard of. Um, that he's prominent in every area of human achievement. And that's true, that was true in the 1800s. Actually, I'm a little bit surprised that it was true in the 1800s, but certainly it's true in the 20th and 21st century. And he's done it all with a tremendous disadvantage, with his hands tied behind his back, meaning there was a disadvantage. The Jews went, you know, the Jews were, um, you know, they were, you know, the, the, there was a lot of bigotry against the Jews. Um, Jews couldn't get into colleges. I mean, maybe it was unofficial, but they had certain amount of Jews that they led into universities, even into Harvard, Yale, Princeton. They were, uh, what do they call them? Uh, quota system, right? But today, of course, you can't have it openly. Certainly you can't have it. Maybe you can have it, you know, without people finding out. But the Jews managed with all that. And by the way, even in Europe, in the European universities, universities in France, universities in Germany, in Berlin, they all had their quotas. They all had their, um, you know, uh, their negative views about the Jewish people. And they did all they could to sort of stop them from growing into what the Jewish people could grow into. So they did it with their hands tied behind their back. They did it, you know, with a great disadvantage. And um, and yet the Jews didn't go the way of the other nations. And that's his big observation. They're still alive and kicking, very alive and kicking. So that's why he ends off after pointing out these different points. He doesn't exactly know what is the secret of the mortality of the Jewish people. Now, there's an easy answer to that, okay? The easy answer, of course, is the God of history. You know, God made sure the Jewish people be around, but that's taking note of the fact that, number one, that there is a God, and there's a God of history, and there's a God watching over the Jewish people, right? And some people would actually say that that's why they believe in God, is because they see something strange that, you know, someone as bright, an articulate as Mark Twain could not figure out. Um, <clears throat> so maybe that's the simple answer, but the, always the simple answer has something behind it. Meaning when we say God is responsible for the Jewish people still being around, that's actually correct. But it doesn't really answer because like, how does God do that? We don't see anything miraculous coming. You know, we don't can't notice anything miraculous. Right. Certainly anything that has happened to us through thousands of years could be explained. The question is, what actually historically. Right. How did God do it? How did he bring it to fruition? Basically, because that's really God's God's hand in, in the world in a secret way. Right. It's not an open way, because 
it hasn't, we haven't seen those, those things being miraculous, right? The Jews have existed, and Mark Twain points it out. He can't understand how that happens. But obviously, with God's hand turning history, something has been guiding and protecting the Jewish people to make sure that they would be, as he describes, as young as ever and as uh, having the same vitality they always had. So the question is, of course, wh what is that? So let's first show that it's actually clearly in the text of the Tanakh. I don't know if Mark Twain knew the Bible well, but it's in the text. So let's go and see um, uh, number two. And the text a little bit cut off, number two, but it's right below on the page, um, on the same page uh, to the left. Uh, and even so, because this is, of course, the Tochacha. In Sefer Vayikra, there is, of course, the, the, the klalot that God gives to the Jewish people, right? Uh, the curses that are very scary in the, uh, you know, that God gives. That's why the Balkori, of course, reads them very quickly, slow and quickly. If you go to Shul on the week of the Chukotai, you'll see that the Balkorah reads it slow and very, very quick, and no one else gets an Ali except the Balkori, because they're always scared that the Balkori will have the guy in mind who got the Ali if he's not friendly to him, right? So it says even, right, that you were in the land of, Jews are in the land of their enemies, I did not, um, you know, despise them or reject them, that may be despise or gil nefesh, like nigal, right? Which means to, um, you know, reject uh, the Jewish people or to destroy them. So it says it very clear in the text that even though God um, put the Jewish people in the land of their enemies, he did not reject them. Right, and he did not destroy them. Right, so it's very clear in the text that this is what God is saying: is that you'll go into the exile, but you won't be destroyed. In Yirmiyo, he says it even clearer because he actually compares it to the other nations. I will make an end to all the nations that I spread you there. You, I won't make an end to. In other words, all the nations you get spread to, that means, you know, they are the strong ones and you're getting, you're going into those other nations. I'm going to make an end to them. They're going to all disappear. It says it very clearly. But you yourself who are being spread there and, the, and logically you're the ones who are supposed to assimilate into those nations, right? Uh, I won't make an end to, right? There's different ways of learning the end of the Pasuk. I'm not going to it right now. But the point over here is that it's already very clear in Yermio, actually in more than one place in Yermio, this Pasuk appears, if I remember correctly, in two places, maybe three, but certainly in two places, um, that... Uh, that's the difference between the Jews and the other nations. The Jews could go into those places like Babylonia, like the Greeks, Rome, 
And of course, when, you know, you visit Rome today, you know, there's nothing like, it's, it's a Catholic city, right? It has no uh, connection with, if you ask the Pope, is there a connection with you and the Roman Empire? He'd probably be embarrassed. He'd probably say there's no connection whatsoever, right? If you want to um, see a Colosseum that was in Rome, right? It cost you a couple of bucks. But you'd see this old Colosseum that's probably, you know, that they dug up somewhere, you know, probably there's more than one. I've never been to Rome. Uh, and I've been to Italy, so I don't really know. But the point over here is, I think it was in an airport in Italy because no one spoke English. It was one of the few airports that like, actually nobody spoke English. I couldn't communicate with them. I guess the only word I knew was pizza. But um, um, so, so, you know, there's actually no connection to that. And if you go to Greece and you start talking about Socrates, I wonder if anyone really will really understand what you're talking about, right? Probably they heard of Socrates, but I doubt that, you know, they, you know, I, you think that there are people in Greece who are named Socrates? I find it hard to believe. You think there are actually? There are still people named Socrates? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they know the, they know all the philosophies of Aristotle and Socrates, right? So I don't know. But uh, you get the impression that those people, and that's what Mark Twain says, those nations don't really exist how they once were. The Egyptians, the Egyptians today is an Arab country. It was not an Arab country then, right? But the Jews who went to all those countries, they were in Egypt, they were in Babylonia, they were in Greece, they were in Rome, right? They're all there, right? The Jews are still existing, and those countries have changed completely. <clears throat> Now, the Radak in the 13th century already points out exactly what Mark Twain did. So he did it actually about 500 years before Mark Twain, about maybe even 600 years before Mark Twain. There's a Pusik in Malachi, which is the last of the prophets. That's why it makes it very important to study Malachi, because that's the end of prophecy. And it's actually the last chapter, which makes it even more dramatic, because it's, it's his last message to the Jewish people before prophecy ends. Right? Ki ani Hashem lo shanisi vatem Yaakov lo chlisem. I, God, never change. And that's the way you guys never end. You're never going to end. Just like I never change, you're never going to end. And the Radak comments, and it says, vatem Yaakov lo chlisem. Right? Kemosha kolu shara umos. Sholonishalem zecher bishmam. There is no, like, like the other nations, that the Radak also noticed this 600 years before, that nothing remained of these nations, right? Shalom they don't have a remembrance, Bishmam, in their name. A lot of these nations are not nations anymore, the Radak says. But you, God is saying, you have not ended and you will not end. And here he points out exactly what Mark Twain points out. He says, not only will you not end, but you will be a unique nation amongst the nations. You will stand out. Even though you were exiled and pushed to every corner of the world, Universe, 
right? Shimchem, your name remains in every place. Jews are not forgotten. So this is exactly what Mark Twain said. Only thing is that um, Mark Twain said it 600 years later. So I want to just say something. Mark Twain was right. Okay, that's important to know that he was right. You know, not every time is the non-Jew right, but this time he was really right. The question, of course, is we still have to answer the question is how did it how did it actually unfold in Jewish history? Right? How did it happen naturally that the Jewish people would just remain and no one else would remain? So uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who lived in the 17th century, 18th century, really was born in the 17th century, but he lived in the 18th century. He was well known. Rabbi Yaakov Emden was a great potek in Germany. He was the fellow fought against Shaktai Tzvi. He was a um, very interesting uh, writer, wrote uh, many responses, a very interesting response as well. And he writes, he had a sitter that he authored, it's called the Beis Yaakov. Sitter, Rabos Sararani Gamlo Yochlu Lanu Labdenu Ulechaloseinu. Many tried to be my adversary, but they're not able to destroy us in any shape or form. Mcholo Umos Hakdomos Hatsumas Avad Zichram Sartzilam. And the other nations that were so strong, the old nations, the nations of old, of yesteryear, right? Their, their memory is gone. Their greatness, Tzilam is literally their shadow, but it means their greatness is not there anymore. What would, what would a, a very bright, sharp philosopher answer. But Mikra Asta Kolela, was this all just good luck? Is that what the, that's what the philosopher would say? Is this all just luck? We have just very good luck. We're very lucky. Chai Nafshi, he swears. Ki bizbonani beniflaos elu godlu eitzli yoter I have to tell you, in truth, that when I understand the miracles, these miracles, right, um, they are greater than the miracles that we had in Egypt. The miracles of the Jewish people still being around, he says, are greater than the miracles we had in Egypt. Greater than uh, the, the miracles we had in the desert and in Eretz Yisrael. And the longer the exile takes, and it's pretty long, right? The greater the miracle is. Because obviously, if it is a miracle and we're lasting and we're lasting less, it's even a greater miracle. But here, Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, that he, after thinking about it, he thinks it's a greater miracle than the miracles of Egypt, than the miracles of the desert, right? So it is quite miraculous. And that's what, of course, he points out in the 18th, in the 18th century. The Meshachochme finally 
describes in the 19th and 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, he already, probably the mid 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, he already describes how it took place in actuality. In other words, how naturally did this happen, right? And that where was God's, you know, hands behind the scenes? Because a lot of times, you know, you have the person who's standing on stage and there's a lot of people standing behind the stage making sure things are going well, right? And where was, you know, what was going on on the stage as God was, um, as God was pulling the strings behind. V'hine, the Mishachach, number five, middle of the page on the bottom. V'hine, me'et hayot Yisrael ba'goyim, barabos ha'shanim, ha'shaloa eminu kol yoshvei seivel, ki yiskaimu ba'ofen nifla ha'shalo yisha'er, machsheves adam maskil. And he says, uh, from the time, the Jewish people, um, were in um, the other nations and so many years that nobody would believe, no one in this earth would believe that it's possible to exist for that long, right? Anyone who's a thinking person, right? He says, Machsheves other maskil, any thinking person, Hayudea Korot, Hayomim, knowing history, world history. That anyone who knows history and knows the depths that swept away for thousands of years, this small, weak nation that had no strength, right? You know, so we, not just that we didn't, we didn't, we weren't, you know, we didn't disintegrate, but we were actually a very small nation, like Mark Twain says, and we're a very weak nation. And yet um, we weren't, we weren't able to be swept away. Why? So in brackets, he says, Asher Zelef Levad. This itself is a proof, a wondrous proof, and a great proof on the fact that this nation is here for a special purpose. Why would you keep around a nation except if it had a special purpose? Right? So he says that this alone, the fact that around somebody is proved that there's something special about us and that we have a special purpose that we need to be kept here for. Hine, and now he's about to describe how it worked. How did it work? This is going to be the first really approach. It's there's probably an A and a B here. There's probably two different ideas that kept the Jews in existence. And the Meshachachma in the Sefer on Chumash points to one of them. The way of meaning God's involvement in the world, that the Jews would rest for about 100 or 200 years. Now, that's not so true, actually, because there are some cases where they rested for longer than that. 
I remember my grandfather, my grandfather was born in 1991. When I was born, that means it was 1491, there were Jews in Lithuania already. And actually, I didn't believe him, so I checked, and he was right. In 1491, there were already people in Brisk, the city of Brisk, known as the Chachme Brisk, the wise ones of Brisk, right? The Tomir Chachom in the 1400s, like 1400s. So by the time Hitler of Akshvo came around, we were in Lithuania probably longer than Hitler's ancestors were in Vienna. Okay? So he says every so often, hundreds of years, what would happen? A stormy wind would get up, right? Like we have in our davening, would spread, spread out, it's, 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 um, it's uh, abundance of waves, and destroy Yivale, waste away, Yaros, again, destroy, Chalek means also end, Yishtof means to wash away, Lo Yachmo. That's what would happen to the Jews, right? All of a sudden, the Jewish nation would be spread out, they would have to leave, and they would, uh, they would get close to destruction without any mercy, Lo Yachmo. Until they were spread out all alone. They were alone. They didn't have anyone who took on for them, basically. And he wrote this latest in the 1920s. Latest in the 1920s. I think his Sefer was published in 1920-something. Way before Hitler even rose to power. Yerutsu They run and escape to a uh, faraway place. And we know this throughout Jewish history, the Jews were exiled to so many places, right? Especially in the Middle Ages, to Spain, then Portugal, then, then Italy, then, you know, then they, they were in England, then the Middle Ages, they were thrown out of England. We know Germany, they were thrown out of Germany. And there, when they, they ran to a place, a faraway place, and they would get together again. They would be a nation. Their Torah would rise, meaning every time the Jews went to a new place, they didn't automatically, their Torah wasn't automatically there, meaning, generally speaking, if we take a look at the United States, for instance, right? The Jews who came to the United States in the 1800s, it was very hard to remain a religious Jew, an observant Jew. Many Jews married out of, of our religion because there were not a lot of Jews and there was not, hardly any Torah. The, the, all the rabbis that they took were rabbis from Eastern Europe that couldn't make a living there that decided to go to different, you know, North Dakota. I know of a rabbi who was in North Dakota. I know a great, great grandson of his who's in North Dakota. Like how many Jews do you think there were in North Dakota, right? There was a slaughterhouse, actually. So that's what kept the rabbi in business a little bit, right? Uh, in Maine, in so many different places in the United States, where if you look, it's like crazy that they were rabbis in these different areas that, in fact, today there were no Jewish communities in most of these areas, right? But it was very hard to keep the Jews 
number one observant that was even actually not to assimilate in those days. So when you first come to a new place, obviously they came because of the pogroms. They came because they wanted to be safe. But Judaism didn't really take off in America, right? I would call it, let's say, Matan Torah wasn't in America probably till the 1940s, right? When a lot of Jews came from Eastern Europe and there was more than just Yeshiva University, which was a island, you know, it was very few. There was, there was still, uh, there was Tarvadas and Chaim Berlin, a few yeshivas, but after the 1940s, they became like Lakewood opened up and uh, in Baltimore, there was Nary Sroll opened up. And then, I mean, today there's neighborhoods where there's yeshiva on every block. I mean, when I went to yeshiva in the 1960s, they were encouraging secular people to send their kids to yeshiva, to elementary school. I was in a yeshiva in East New York, Brownsville. And uh, and the rabbi who headed the yeshiva was Rabbi Shpidman, and he used to go to secular parents and say, um, I'll take them for free if you send them, take them out of public school and you send them, right? I remember my father telling me when I grew up, he said Rabbi Shmidman used to come to the, the parents and then he used to come to the shuls and say, listen, I let five kids in for free. You got to make money for me now. Keep the yeshiva running. My father was a rabbi in New York. So he remembers. And he said, he came to me once and he said, I told, I told the woman for three dollars a month, three dollars a month, I will take a kid into Yeshiva. She says, but I have another two. He says, three for five bucks. <laughs> so that was in that was probably in the 1950s. Okay. I remember going to Yeshiva and my mother tell me you can't trade sandwiches with the guy. Because we always wanted to trade sandwiches, right? We never liked what our parents sent. We always liked what the other parent. She said, you can't because there's a lot of kids who are not observant. I don't know if they're kosher, right? I, I doubt today, if you go into a yeshiva in New York, a parent has to say, right, that you can't trade sandwiches. They may say you can't trade sandwiches because they're not whole visual. They don't keep yashan. The, the, the level of observance went up 300-fold, Okay. I mean, if that's the worst thing you do, they eat throw and you don't eat yashan. I mean, already, you know, I'm not worried about your olum haba if that's your only sin, right? So, but but that's what it tells you. Even when I went to school in 19, I started elementary school in 1959, right? So the kids were in my class. I remember with some of them took off their yarmulke when they left the school because they came from non-from homes, but Robert Schmidman had them in the school, right? So there was actually an evolution in America. And that's how we got the whole Yisrael, because of course, the, the, the question was brought up to, to Ramosha Feinstein. It wasn't brought up in the 1940s. What do you mean? People keeping Shabbos was like, if you kept Shabbos, you were the biggest tzaddik in the world. If you kept kosher, you had what kosher meat? You're the biggest tzaddik in the world. What are you gonna tell me I'm, I'm not keeping the whole Yisrael? So that's part of the evolution, right? That's what the, the Meshachach is talking about here. He says, Jews walked into a new country. And if you read Jewish history in the Middle Ages, it's exactly the same thing, okay? Lithuania has no rabbis. They're all being, the Ramon was born in Germany and he went to Poland, right? They were all born in the Western Europe countries because that's where Torah was very strong and getting weak because they were torturing us, right? 
So you'll see that all the rabbis in the 14 and 1500s that come to Lithuania, Poland, and Russia are all from the Western countries and they don't have their own rabbis. And then you take a look at the 1800s, right? The late 1800s and all the rabbis from Germany are coming from Lithuania, Russia, and Poland, right? It's going the opposite way because when communities start, they're always, they always look like our American community, right? I remember going into the supermarket supermarket it was three rows that was it was called the supermarket otherwise it was the grocery mr bam's grocery but the supermarket right so they had two types of kosher cookies from the same company called educator i don't know if you remember that you remember the educated cookies that tells you rage a little bit. i don't want to say anything right but um there were two, they had two, they had a chocolate chip and another one. And that's what my mother let me look at. The rest of the row was all like, um, I forget the name of it. Nabisco, which is kosher today. And and in fact, Nabisco that comes from England is Kov Yisrael and it's Yasha. I mean, that's a Madrid for Nabisco, right? So, so that tells you the evolution of what we really went through and the people that were born here, the, by the way, the Meshachachma, I don't have it here, but the, the Meshachachma goes on to talk about what happens when you reach the peak and you can't be Machmer anymore. I'm not going to go into that this time. You'll have to wait for next year. What? Okay. But that's what he says. They would Yugdal Toratam Chachmatam Yasuchoyl Ad Chayot Ger until they are going to forget that they're actually in a foreign land. Now, in another paragraph, which I didn't report to, he says, and they even think Berlin is Jerusalem. That's what he writes. They even think Berlin is Jerusalem. But he says, they don't even realize. They think that this is the place where they were carved out. They're, you know, they're from here. You know, it only takes one or two generations, three generations, right? And of course, you really feel like I've been here for 500 years. You know, I grew up, I'm just as American as everybody else, right? Well, not looking forward to God's saving the Jewish people at the right time, the spiritual geula. They stop looking for that because they feel what? Very comfortable. Okay? So that's why all of a sudden, what has to happen? Then a storm comes even greater than the last storm. It, um, it, it will remind the Jewish person with a very loud and noisy rash, barash, shaking up, right? An earthquake. Yehudi atah You are a Jew. Who made you a human being? Lech lechol eretz Leave our country. This is the way the Jewish person went from century to century, from nation to nation. You just have to look, open up the Divriyayam, the history books, and you'll see a history book about Jews. It all looks exactly like this. 
This is for two reasons. Okay. This served the following purpose, two purposes, making sure the Jewish religion remains, and in fact, making sure the nation called the Jewish people remains. In other words, as ironic as it is, right, and as terrible as anti-Semitism is, the Meshachachim is saying, that's what actually kept us as Jews. Every time we settled down and wanted to get comfortable and be less Jewish because we're now comfortable and now we can melt and, um, uh, you know, we can melt into that other nation and, and assimilate into the other nation, all of a sudden something happened. And in fact, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, I thought that it would never happen in America. There were people who said, some interesting rabbis that said it would happen in America, but I thought it, it can't happen in America. America is a democracy. It's not like the European countries. And in the last 10 or 15 years, we see that there's been a drastic change in America as far as their relationship with the Jewish people, not only the relationship with Israel, but somehow or another, there's always equating Jews with, you know, Jewish people with Israel, even if they're anti-Zionist for some reason. But that doesn't matter because there were so many Jews in Eastern Europe, in, I mean, in Western Europe, in Germany, who were completely assimilated and married out. Hitler didn't care. He just said, like, you're Jewish anyway. So the Meshachachma here finally gives us the secret. The secret is basically anti-Semitism. So with all the evils that anti-Semitism had, all the complaints we have, it does a very special job. And he's basically saying that behind the curtain, God is making sure that Jews don't get too comfortable. And I want to tell you something interesting. The last time my grandfather spoke at an Aguda convention, it was probably 1977, 1978. He was already over 90 years old at that time. Maybe, yeah, he was probably over 90 at that time. Uh, and he pointed out, he pointed this out. He said, you know what, I'm feeling that you guys are already a new generation and you're too comfortable here. Mm -hmm. And you have to be very careful because if you get too comfortable, the goal is God has to turn the screws in a little bit. I mean, spoken Yiddish, but he said God has to turn the screws in. So make sure you don't get too comfortable here. And he was talking already to my generation, right? I was already, I happened to be first generation in America, but there were a lot of people who were second generation, some even third generation in America. Right. And he said to them that there's a big problem. You got to remember where you're from. You got to remember who you are and where you're from. And if you forget, and he was talking to very orthodox people when he said it, he wasn't talking to people who were assimilating. Right. And yet he said, can't get too comfortable. Right. Because this is not our home. It was a great home for now and it served its purpose. Right. And it serves its purpose for the people in there, but it's not as comfortable as it was. The last trip I took to America was actually the first trip, trip, official trip I took after COVID was about two and a half years. And I went right after Pesach, uh, not right after Pesach, but a few weeks after Pesach. And I got a text from my wife, you're not allowed to take a subway. That's what she wrote. I said, what about the Long Island Railroad? That's what, but not the regular subway. 
So anyone I had to meet, I had to meet on 34th Street or at least walking distance from the Long Island Railroad. Right. So I walked actually 10 or 12 blocks for one meeting, but that had to be walkable. Right. Now, if that doesn't sound like the beginning of something, a change. Right. Now, I actually remember when I was a kid, you couldn't get on the subway. But then I was told after I came to Israel, there was an Italian mayor that cleaned up New York City for a long while. And now it's returned to what it was. I wore a kippah. But some people told me to wear a baseball cap. That's what they told me. A lot of Jews are wearing baseball caps. What? Nobody? They know you're Jewish. Right. I got it. I got it. Yeah. Right. You're right. There's a very famous joke about it, but we'll leave it. Um, anyway, but that's what he basically says. He says that 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 which we fight against so much, which we call anti-Semitism, right? That's actually what actually kept us alive, right? And had we not felt too comfortable, we wouldn't have had to deal with anti-Semitism according to the Meshach But it's inevitable. It's a natural thing to want to feel at home. And after, you know, a generation, two generations, three generations, right? Which many of the Jews in America today are, like many of the secular Jews are there. It's, 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 very, it's very natural to feel like this is my home, especially in the United States. My grandfather said the American Galut was very different than all the other exiles because the other exiles, the non-Jews at least claimed that they were there before us. It's not necessarily true, but they claimed they were there before us. In America, everybody was an immigrant, right? So you had Italians, Irish, Polish, right? Russians come today and people from the uh, Far East come, right? Uh, so the Asians come, right? So you always feel much more comfortable. I guess I said, God did a tremendous service to the Jews, made them feel really comfortable. But on the other hand, said, if you feel too comfortable, you get into trouble. So that's really the first reason that, um, and I'm not sure why, you know, I, I guess he couldn't conceive it, um, Mark Twain, uh, that that was the reason why the Jews, actually the answer to his question, the answer to his question of, you know, what is the secret of their immortality, right? How is, of course it's God, but how does God pull the strings? He says, you can't get too comfortable. And by not letting you get comfortable, you can't assimilate, you can't, you know, fade out of existence. That's the first thing. But he made a lot of other points. And I think the other points are, are um, we would call it number B, why the Jewish people remained unique and different and didn't, you know, just fall into the waste bin of history. So Rosolovechik writes the following thing um, on, turn over the page, number one on top left. But Rome realized later, and that was the Romans destroyed the base of Mithras, and they destroyed Jerusalem. And they thought that we won't have to worry about the Jews anymore, right? We won't have to worry about it. But Rome realized later that even though they had destroyed the Beit HaMikdash, they had not destroyed the Jewish community, which is strange, because he destroyed the homeland, usually destroyed the community. The Jewish community was as loyal to God after the Hurban as it was during the time of the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaMikdash was standing. Rome realized that the strength of the Jew is not dependent upon the Beit HaMikdash, 
that Torah is the cohesive force that unites the Jews and helps them carry on even under the worst circumstances. The observance of Jewish law is what unites us. And it was at this point that a wave of persecution in the form of restrictive decrees inundated the Jewish community and the first of the 10 martyrs was killed. Okay. In other words, they realized that it's not the base of Migdish that's keeping the Jews alive. It's not Jerusalem. It's helpful, but it's the Torah. And what they decided to do was, and that's where we actually on Tisha B'Av, we actually have our Zehal of Anon in our keynote suite. Twice a year, we remind ourselves about the 10 martyrs, once on Yom Kippur and once on Tisha B'Av for different reasons. Uh, it's not, it's on Yom Kippur, we're not, we're not doing Avelut, we're not mourning. On Tisha B'Av, we're mourning for the 10 martyrs, but and it's a different reason on, on, um, on Yom Kippur. But Rasulvechik, of course, points out very clearly that the Romans realized that it was the Torah and the observance that really kept the Jews from assimilating out. I mean, the Jews were still at this time in Eretz Israel, but of course, the Romans did want them to assimilate out, even in Eretz Israel, right? They didn't want them to remain that unique nation. Eventually, the Jews are, you know, brought to Rome and other places in, in Europe in the second, you know, if the second temple was destroyed um, and they still didn't assimilate out. And Soloveitchik says that, yes, what Rome realized was actually true and that the decrees that they made, they were actually right for making those decrees because that's what would keep that, though, that, that idea of Torah and its folk would keep the Jews um, from assimilating. I want, I want to just share with you, I, I one year went to a um, to University of Michigan to recruit students. It was many, many years ago. And the rabbi who was in charge over there, um, there was a rabbi who was in charge who wasn't there. It was uh, Avram Jacobowitz, Rabbi Avram Jacobowitz. And he had his sidekick who was Rabbi Eisenman. I think today he's in, in NYU, but then he was a young whippersnapper and he, was in charge of making things happen at um, whatever they call that place. I forgot the name of it. In our was the name of where it was, but the name of the, uh, what? JRC? JRC, Jewish Renaissance Center? I guess, Jewish Resource Center, okay. So I spoke there and they asked me to speak about Jewish leadership, okay? So uh, I spoke about Jewish leadership and it was in front of, I guess I would say probably 25 to 30 kids who were part of this program of Jewish leadership. Um, and uh, I would say about out of the 25 kids, maybe 23 were not observant. Okay. There was probably two already that were like more observant. Um, <clears throat> and as I'm talking about this, about Jewish leadership, of course I spoke, but I said, it's very hard to be a Jewish leader if you don't know anything about Judaism. Right? You would think that, right? You have Jewish leaders, they know nothing about Judaism and they're Jewish leaders, right? Um, <clears throat> so I spoke about what you need to know about Judaism in order to be a Jewish leader, realizing that, of course, I'm not supposed to try to make them observe it, right? <clears throat> in any event, um, one of the women raises her hand and says to me, 
I have two brothers who are marrying out. And I'm a sister, right? The three kids in the family, two brothers who are already engaged to marry out, right? And I don't think I'm going to marry out. Well, she's from the JRC already, so that's already a level up, right? Um, how do you explain that, Rabbi? I say, what do you mean, how do I explain it? Are, you, are your kids, of, are your brothers observant? So they, she said, no, but my parents told us, since I can remember, you're not supposed to marry a guy. You're not supposed to marry a non-Jew, right? And they told it to us like every year, right? I guess that was their birthday present. You're not allowed to marry a non-Jew, right? Uh, how do you explain that? So I turned to Rabbi Eisenman and I said, um, he had little kids, but Rabbi Jacobowitz had actually a daughter who was married who was tutoring in our school or had tutored in a school. I don't remember if she had or she was. So um, I said to Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Eisenman, I said, how many times, you know, his daughter married a guy who learned brisk kolel, you know, not just a from guy, but the guy was learning here in Israel and brisk in the kolel of brisk in Meisharim, right? So I, I asked him, how many times do you think Rabbi Jacobowitz told his daughter not to marry out? How many times did he tell her not to marry a guy? So he's looking at me. He's like in a state of shock. He says, "Never sure." He, they, he never told her not to marry out. I said, "So how come they didn't marry out?" Right? And the, the woman is sitting there, and she's copying exactly what's going on. Right? If you're keeping Torah mitzvahs, you don't have to tell your children to marry out. They, they, they can't marry out. You know, you don't have to tell them. It's it's absurd, right? Yeah. If you have to tell your kid not to marry out, you basically lost the battle. Okay, so that's what Soloveitchik is saying. If you're talking about why the Jews didn't assimilate Torah mitzvah, right? And that's what Rome realized. Now, Soloveitchik's idea comes actually from the Chazal. Chazal already say, if you look at number two, right? In the Tochacha, Chazal say, on that passage we started with, lo ma'astim v'ogaltim v'chalosim, what do you mean God didn't reject them? What do you mean God didn't like, um, you know, was not, God was disgusted, was not disgusted with them. What, what do you mean? Everything he gave, all the good gifts he gave to them, he took away. If not for that Sefer Torah that remained with them, we wouldn't be any different than the other nations. Okay? That's exactly what the Medishir is saying. That the only thing that remained was that Torah. Okay? And this piece of Midrash, this Midrash Halacha, is the focus of our davening on Yom Kippur. At the end of Yom Kippur, we say slichot in, in um, the in the Yom Kippur davening. That's number three. Ha'yu lecherpo levizos, 
Right? Ain't sure Raka Torah That's exactly this medrash. Definitely getting from the medrash. All the beautiful gifts are sunk and, and hidden and only remain with this Torah. Okay? Now, by the way, the medrash goes on to say a tremendous chiddush. Number four, Rav Hunav, Rav Yirmiya, Boshem, Rav Yishiyah, Bar Abba, Omri, Ksiv, Fosi, Azavu, Vesitoresilo, Shamaro. Yirmiya says, in the name of God, me, God, they left, and they didn't guard my Torah. And the Medrash says, Halavai, Osi, Azavu, Vesitoresilo, Shamaro. Halavai, they would leave me, but keep my Torah. Just keeping the Torah, without God, just learning Torah, right? Would keep would already satisfy God. Halavai that they would leave me, but at least guard my Torah. Right? That's something we have to realize: is the Torah is so powerful that just the study of Torah. And I, I always tell it to the conservative reform movement when I meet people from the conservative reform movement. I always say to them, "Don't make, don't let them keep shops. Don't let them eat kosher. Just let them learn Torah. They can't even read Hebrew. Your your congregants can't even read Hebrew." Let them learn how to read Hebrew. Let them learn some Torah. They don't shouldn't keep any of it. But let them now. The, the hidden part of the medrash is right? Because Torah has a special has a special uh, ingredient that would bring you back. But that's what he says. But I, I want to end maybe with just saying that. Um, there is a, you know, there's a famous story about Rabbi Akiva in the Gemara. The, the Gemara tells the story of Rabbi Akiva that he gathered people together after the Romans made the decree that Rasulvechik spoke about, right? That decree, the Yenala to learn Torah. He gathered together and learned Torah with them publicly. And eventually he became one of the 10 martyrs. And he says to Papus ben Yehuda, who says, what are you doing, Rabbi Akiva? The Romans decreed, you're not allowed to learn Torah. So what does he say? He says, I'm going to give you a parable. What is this similar to? To a fox that goes on the edge of the river and he sees the fish going from, gathering together, going from place to place. And he says to them, why are you running away? They said to him, because of the nets that, that people are throwing at us and we don't want to get caught in the nets, right? So the fox says, you know what? If you're scared of the nets, come up to the shore and be with me, the fox says, right? And we'll live together and you don't have to worry. And of course, they answer the fox and say, they call you smart. You know, yeah, fox the person, you're smart. You're an idiot, right? Because if we can't survive in the water, right? We have to run and we have to worry about who's gonna catch us in the water. Obviously on the land where we're going to certainly die, we're not gonna survive because we don't have the water. So what is the parable here that Rabbi Akiva is giving him? The parable is that, I mean, let's go through one by one really. Who's the fox? Who's the fox? The fox comes to the shore and he sees the fish swimming and he says, come up to me. Don't worry, right? What? The Romans, right? 
Because it's the Romans. Who's the fish? The Jews. Who is the water? What? The Torah. And who are the traps? They worried about getting trapped in the nets. That's the, that's the Roman decrees, right? The Roman decrees are the traps for the Jewish people, right? And come up to the dry land and live not in the water, but live with us, right? And what does that mean? Leave the Torah and come and live with us Romans and we'll be one. That's exactly where Rabbi Akiva was telling them, that's not what we want. So I have to study Torah because that is the central idea that's going to keep us alive. It's going to keep us vibrant. And it will actually probably have its effect on the educated Jewish people and how they're educated in other fields as well. Jews are always educated. If they're not, if they're secular, they're still educated. Where do they get that from? They just pulled it out of a hat, right? They pulled it out of the fact that all Jews used to study Torah, right? Jews were always educated when the Christians were not educated, when they had a priest that was educated, they had a nun that was educated, and everyone else were like, you know, people were ignorant. But the Jews never had ignorant people because they always studied Torah, right? So that's what Rabbi Akiva is saying, is that the Meshachach is talking about one idea that kept the Jews to in line. Right. That was the anti-Semitism. That was the fact that Jews couldn't get comfortable. So they couldn't melt and they couldn't assimilate. Right. The other thing was the fact that we have the Torah it was a positive thing that Rasulvechik and um, the Chazal are saying over here is that Rabbi Akiva knew and the Romans also knew it, that as long as we learn Torah and therefore we have to be willing to give up our lives for the Torah, as long as we learn Torah, we will not assimilate because the Torah is really what separates us from everything else.